In June 1821, a man called Aaron Smith, a sailor by trade, went to find his fortune in the West Indies. He had some talent at being a navigator, and so was able to apply his trade in those profitable waters for about two years. But like many sailors of that era, and even today, he had a wife and children who were growing up without him. He wasn't in their life. That, and the declining health that many would suffer in the Caribbean, caused him to become homesick after two years, to want to go back to England. Sailors at that time, this being the 1800s, had a little agency when it came to their own jobs. They would be contracted for specific voyages or a specific amount of time. And when that time was up, they would be able to find new employment on different ships. This little freedom was enough to tantalize many a generation of youths to sail the seven seas just to see the world. But in this specific instance, it was a boon to Aaron because it meant that he could contract himself back to England with little hassle. Being an experienced seaman with quite a few friends, his name would eventually be advanced to a man called Mr. Lumsden, the master of a brig called Zephyr. He would enter into an agreement to become the first mate of this ship in April 1822. Before signing the contract, he did not understand what he was getting himself into. As well, Mr. Lumsden was going in the right direction at the right time. He was missing the most important attribute of any captain or any leader, that being competency. Through the process of finding and loading the freight, Mr. Lumsden would show his inexperience when it came to all aspects of being the captain of the ship. He didn't understand how much water they needed, how much food, where to store it, how to properly store it. The little intricacies and details that you only learn through experience, he didn't have. Mr. Smith would find out that was because this Mr. Lumsden was a coal trader. He was not a merchant. He was not a sailor. He was trying to cash in on the profitability of 18th century trade between England and the New World. Mr. Smith would later acknowledge that he should have got out. There was red flags everywhere. But after having signed his name on the dotted line, he was adverse to go back on that promise. He also did miss his family and was sick and just wanted to be home. They would pick up some passengers, these being mostly children, and would set sail on June 29th headed towards England. It readily became obvious that Mr. Lumsden did not simply want a first mate, but really wanted someone to teach him the ropes of sailing. He would use Mr. Smith's expertise throughout the voyage like a crutch, not being able to make his own decisions. This lowered him in the eyes of the crew. He was not being a captain. Naval ships are strict hierarchies. And by not sticking to it, the crew start to feel uneasy. Their whole entire lives, they've been conditioned to follow orders no matter what. So they would follow orders. Even terrible, terrible orders. To get back to England, there was one big decision that the captain had to make. They were at Jamaica, and so they had to go around Cuba. Do you go east, or do you go west? The expedition really hinges on this decision. As once you hit Florida, and later the North Atlantic, all ships really take about the same route. The open ocean isn't that different. Mr. Lumsden was not confident in being able to make this decision, and so would ask Mr. Smith for the advantages and disadvantages of both sides. The Leeward Passage, which was the westernmost passage, would go around the west tip of Cuba. This was the quicker but more dangerous route. It would take them around the side of Cuba that was filled with pirates, 
the long coastline with their coves, hard to patrol by the Royal Navy. The Windward Passage was to the east, between East Cuba and what is now modern-day Haiti, but that time was Western Hispaniola. But it was slow and could lack wind. If a ship got into the Windward Passage, it could be sitting there for days in just a calm sea. While there was enough trading and naval activity happening in the Windward Passage to where it wouldn't be dangerous for a single ship to be stuck there for a few days. It was slow, very slow, but safe. Mr. Smith would try to needle him in the direction of the Windward Passage, but he's afraid to make the decision for him. His experienced seamanship was working against him. A captain makes the decision, not a first mate. But Mr. Smith would lay all these advantages and disadvantages out to Mr. Lumston. But Mr. Lumston was confident, as long as the ignorant can be. He wanted his first trip to be profitable. He didn't want to wait. So he decided to take the leeward passage, dooming his enterprise and the crew. So they headed west, first to the Cayman Islands, then to western Cuba. They were making good time, with clear seas and good wind, and as they eventually rounded St. Augustine's Cape, the captain was confident in the success of the voyage. The crew knew, though, that the real danger had just begun. Two days past the Cape, at about 2 o'clock p.m., Mr. Smith spotted a schooner headed towards the ship. He informed Mr. Lumston and cautioned him that this could be a pirate, because as all good captains know, schooners were quick, which was the most valuable asset a pirate ship could have. Mr. Lumsden ignored their advice to change course, as he was sure that no ship would dare attack any man flying under the Union Jack. They thus continued on their way, sealing their fate. In a couple of hours, once the schooner got close enough to where there was no escape, there was no running, the ship emptied its bowels, and pirates flooded the deck. The gig was up. An order was yelled over to drop anchor and be ready to be boarded. Mr. Lumsden and one less act of cognitive dissonance, ignored these orders, and a volley of musket was shot at the ship. Only through fear of his own life did he eventually comply. Ten pirates would board the Zephyr and would take Mr. Smith, Mr. Lumsden, and a few others over to the pirate ship. When they reached there, they found a five-foot-six man with black hairs and a strong nose. He had a light complexion with a little bit of native in him. He would interrogate the captives, looking for wealth that they had within their ship. But he was really looking for a captive, a navigator. In the same way that Mr. Lumsden needed a first mate to help him navigate, as no man can be up at all hours of the day. This pirate also needed a first mate to help him navigate his ship. As such, he hinted to Mr. Smith that his cooperation would not be up for discussion. He's going to come with the pirates. He's going to become their navigator, no matter what. And as the pirates looted the Zephyr, they skinned the animals that were on board alive. They beat their crew with their cutlasses, swinging at them and at the last second, twisting the blade to use the flat of it. To finish extorting all the money the crew had on board, they locked people on the quarter deck and set it on fire, saying that if more money was not produced, they would let the ship and everyone on board either burn to death or drown. After having seen all this, Mr. Smith was understandably distraught about having to go with the pirates. 
he would be practically their slave, forced to carry whatever actions these despicable people decided on a whim. He brought up these concerns to the pirate captain. He didn't think he was capable enough. He didn't think he was able to hang with these ruffians. With a concerned look, the pirate turned to Mr. Smith and simply said, Your people have a very bad opinion of us, but I will convince you that we are not as bad as we are represented to be. And with the confident smile of a man in complete control, he ordered, Come along with me. Hail, I am Mark Campbell, and this is Adrift, a history podcast. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the history of piracy, the early history of piracy, from about the beginning to the Roman Empire. So come with me, and let's see where the history takes us. This is episode one, A Pirate's Life for We. I think the idea of piracy portrays the ultimate escapism. The why do we work boring jobs for long hours to make money to be able to do what we want? What if we could do what we want 24-7 and make a lot of money? Not just a lot of money. And lazing about all day, drinking, whoring, join the top 1% and live the rest of our life carefree. Now that sounds like a great deal. But it's not just something you can do. I view it more like when you're going to buy a lottery ticket, you put $5 down for a small one millionth of a chance of winning a few million dollars. What if instead of of money that you're putting down, instead of $5, we say it's your life. Now, no one's going to take that deal. What, What if we change the odds a little bit to where instead of it being a one millionth chance you win, well, what if we say there's like a 75% chance you win? But even if you do win, there's like a 90% chance that in three years you'll be dead. Do you still take the deal? You put your life on the line? I don't think I would. That's probably because I live in a comfy situation. I'm not worried about where I get where I get my food from. I have a comfy job. There's also a lot of deaths for people in the world. If, as we said, the equation was a little bit more amicable to the downtrodden, I have no doubt that there would be modern-day pirates, buccaneers, marauders. A lot of people, if given the opportunity to rule the world just for three years, would take it. Because you can have a lot of fun in those three years. What is it? What's the phrase? Everyone dies, but not everyone lives. But this fascination, it stuck with me to where I, I wanted to know why. Not just why did people turn to piracy, but why, why did piracy become a problem and only a few like certain subsets of our history to when it, it became a real issue? For example, why did the Cilician pirates happen when they did? Why specifically did the Cilicians become pirates? There's lots of different people in the Mediterranean. That's an ancient example, but the most common being, why did the golden age of piracy happen? I mean, there's a few obvious reasons. One being all the money that was being transported. They're transporting straight silver, something of 
real value. It's not like wine or linen or clothes. Those are all great. But when you have giant treasure fleets, that's bound to draw people's imaginations to sail the seven seas. Part of the reason could just be the human media sphere. So everything from ancient writings to like today's Hollywood has always loved the idea of pirates. Homer, one of the oldest and greatest storytellers that we currently have, wrote about pirates in his books. Robinson Crusoe, which is the big pirate book that everyone's read, probably for school if you grew up in America, was written in 1719 during the golden age of piracy. So even while people were still performing mutinies and stealing from merchants, there was authors writing stories about pirates and far-flung Caribbean paradises to go explore. It's just such a thematic backdrop for a story. But when examining pirates, there's a few things you have to look at. The first being, what is a pirate? I know that may sound like an antiquated question for most people, as obviously when I say the word pirate, you get a very vivid image, probably of someone in loose baggy clothing, maybe a peg leg, an eye patch even holding a sword with flintlock pistols on their side. Maybe you even think of Blackbeard with fuses woven throughout his, well, beard. But we all have an idea of what I'm talking about. Pirates are bandits, for sure, but they're, they're something more. Most obviously, they have a boat. That's the most important part of being a pirate. Without a boat, you're nothing more than the typical bandit, a landlubber. But while bandits have probably existed for as long as humans have existed, what is a bandit if not just a raider? And we've had that since the hunter-gatherer days. Pirates speak to a more collective enterprise. To run a boat or a ship, it takes many people doing a complex job. It's like, if you've you've ever read anything about early 17th century boats and how they were able to navigate by the stars, the sun, how they used wind as a propellant, how they can tack, how they can shift the sails whatever direction is needed to get the utmost speed, how they're able to man tens of cannons on a single ship. This is a complex organization. It's more than just simply 10 people with clubs attacking a single merchant. It's a full system. And in part, I think it speaks to how great humans can be if we work together, specifically for the wrong reasons. But as I dove deeper into this history of piracy, I really started to think, who who is the first pirate? We know of so many great pirates. Captain Kidd, Blackbeard, who I mentioned earlier, Calico Jack, Now, not to harp too much on the media sensation pirates have always been, but these names are just so great. Calico Jack just rolls off the tongue. So let's look at the beginning of piracy in the Western world. And to do that, we have to go back a long ways. There's a few different threads we can pull on to unravel this mystery. The first, and I think most obvious, being look at the etymology of the word pirate. 
we obviously know what it means when I say it. Our fathers knew what it means meant when they said it. So the actual word pirate is a loan word from French, who took their word from the Latin word pirata. And like so many great Roman institutions, ideas, people, they took their word from the Greeks. That word being pirates. So now that we know what word we're looking for, we now just have to find the oldest inscription of that. And then we'll obviously have the first pirate, right? Well, unfortunately, it's not so simple. As the earliest example we have of pirates comes from about the 3rd century BCE. And it's describing basically a pirate attack on a coastal settlement. So it's not describing a single individual or even a set of individuals. We can say these people were the first pirates. But it does show that by the 3rd century BCE, the Greeks now had an idea that people, bandits really, on boats, differed from bandits on land and needed a word to separate the two. Plutarch, who was a Greek under Roman rule, and who wrote many great Roman history and Greek histories, he specifically defined piracy as people on ships who attacked both ships and maritime cities. This is in about 180, and it's a good example that pirates don't necessarily only have to be at sea, English law states that piracy is kidnapping, raping, stealing on the high seas, but it doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be that way for the collectual cultural zeitgeist to consider it piracy. It can happen in port cities or along the coastline and still be considered piracy, even back then. As the oldest inscription we have of Pirates, again, it's only from about the 3rd century BC, we know that piracy had to exist before that, right? Just because they didn't use the word that we draw our linguistic history from doesn't mean that the act of piracy wasn't happening. Instead, let's look at the logical beginning of piracy. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, as I said earlier, piracy in the modern day is kind of defined by, well, Webster defines it as robbery on the high seas. So basically just a crime, most popular, stealing, some murder, happening on the ocean, on rivers and lakes. Well, it specifically says the high seas. I will not be discluding the great waterways of the world. So the Greeks had another word called lestes, which we now define as bandits slash pirates in modern day English. And it really, that was the older Greek word. So when Homer's talking about pirates in classical Greek era, he would use the word lestes instead of pirates. And really, lestes was used throughout Greek literature, even when the word pirates was invented for pirates. But before pirates, the way they would differentiate between a bandit from land and a bandit on the seas, a pirate, is they would, well, use the context of the situation. When they would describe this lestes, they would say he's on a boat. And that would obviously mean that he's a pirate because, well, if you're on a boat and you're a bandit, you have to be a pirate. But following the etymology of the word, you know, it can only get us so far. It can only give us a back end to where 
We know by 300 BC that there obviously was pirates. It's because people were using the word pirates to describe people in the same meaning that we now describe it today. But there has to have been pirates before 300 BC. There just has to. So we can instead look at it through a logical lens to where we look for all the different aspects of piracy, which there's really not that many. And when when those two things happen in the same area, logically, we can assume that pirates existed at that time. So, again, to be a pirate, Webster defines it as robbery on the high seas. And there's really two aspects of that. The first being robbery. There must be goods being transported, whether that be clay jars, wine, linens, anything really. The other thing I will specifically be looking for is a legal system. It doesn't necessarily have to be a direct code of law, but you need to have a a legal framework to break. One of the earliest codes of law we have is what's called the Code of Hammurabi. It's from about the 1700s BCE, and it's this great big black basalt pillar. And on the top of it, there's a relief showing Hammurabi getting this specific code from the Babylonian sun god Shamash. And then it has the code on it. But it's a striking figure. And it would have been even more striking for anyone who read it at that time. Because it wouldn't be as tall as us. So it's this five, imagine a five foot tall human walking up to this massive pillar of black rock. And on the top is your god giving these code this code of law to your god king that's an imposing image just the spectacle of it probably made less people break the law but while that's one of the most famous examples some of the oldest there's another one called the code of ur which was made by a king called ur namu now the city of ur was in the Mesopotamia Crescent, where modern-day northern Kuwait would be. And this code of law not was not nearly as imposing as the Code of Hammurabi. It was an if-then-then code, to where if a man is caught to have murdered someone, then he must be killed. And this was in what we believe to be about 2100 BC. So, we're getting pretty far back there by now. And Ur was thought to have been on the ocean and to have some naval going capabilities but like all ancient history it all eventually leads back to Egypt right so when looking for early Egyptian codes of law they they don't have any inscriptions and pillars that we can really go look at and see I read a really interesting article that talked about how the Egyptian code of law was not so much set in stone but was more of a cultural and religious pressure where they used the god Ma'at, which was the god of justice, to basically make people, as a collective, pressure each other into doing the right thing to where there would be priests that would go around and rule in disputes in the name of Ma'at. I got the picture of almost an ancient form of Judge Dredd, of religious priests going around and almost taking the law into their own hands, becoming the judge sharing an executioner. My own mental image has them wearing the dread helmet, screaming, I am the law. And 
while most people believe that this is there was some legal system that they were ruling on and that precedent was set. I have read historians who think that it was more uh, just a general sense of, of guidelines that these individual priests would have the power to decide individual cases, usually up to their own good judgment. This being as far back as I've seen 3000 BC. So we're talking a long, long time ago. But the other aspect we need to look at is a little easier as we're just looking at where were the first boats invented. As you can't be pirates if you can't sail the seven seas. It's an intrinsic part of it. The earliest boats that we have history for are in Egypt and our early reed boats. We obviously don't have any of them intact. But the oldest intact boat we have is called the Khufu boat or the solar boat. And it's an actual real naval vessel now it was made to go up and down the not the calm waters of the nile it has long poles to push itself it's a low flat lying boat with a tall stern and bow but it's fully made out of wood and it's very clearly made by an expert craftsman it's 43 meters long so it's a very large boat that's about 140 feet in american units this bow is believed to have been produced in maybe 2000 BC. So we can officially say that in around 2000 BC, there was probably someone in Egypt who used a boat to commit some other crime against another on the Nile. And as you probably heard, that is a very soft statement. There's not a lot of punch to it. It's not very satisfying. So let's let's keep looking. What is the oldest reputable source that someone calls someone else or some people pirates? To do that, we have to go to Thucydides and his history of the Peloponnesian War. Now Thucydides was a Greek or specifically Athenian general who fought in the Peloponnesian War and later would write a history of it, which you call the history of the Peloponnesian War. And in this great history, we want to focus on one specific line when he's describing all of the history of Greece. And in this line, he says, he's talking about Minos, of what would become the Minoan civilization of Crete. But of this Minos, he says, quote, He made himself master of what is now called the Hellenic Sea and rolled over the Cyclades, into most of which he sent the first colonies expelling the Carians and appointing his own son's governor, and thus did his best to put down piracy in those waters, a necessary step to secure the revenues for his own use. So obviously, to put down piracy, Minos of Crete had to have a problem with piracy. So we can wrap it up. The first accurate historical evidence of piracy happening was obviously the Minoan civilization. Unfortunately, Many modern-day historians dispute that this, what was called the Minoan Thassilocracy, even existed. There's two real problems with Thucydides' account. The first being the time differential. Thucydides was born in about 460 BC, and the Minoan civilization is thought to have completely fallen by about 1100 BC. So, to put that in perspective, if you were to take that time differential 
and gave it to us. It would be like you trying to describe the fall of Constantinople through only oral histories. There, there was some writings, but we believe it was mostly for just pure administration. All, all the really important histories were made into stories. If you ever played a game of telephone in a room with 10 people with one phrase, you can understand how things may have gotten murky for him or he may have lost some of the detail throughout the ages. And while oral storytelling was much more important for them to get it right because they couldn't write things down and they couldn't check it. And so if someone changed the story, well, that's now what happened. Over the centuries, things are bound to change. Individual storytellers are put emphasis on different points of the story. And it'll just all get murky. So it's, it's really hard for him to write a complex history of Greece before we, he had any of our modern techniques. Now, I used a word earlier that you may not have known. I used thassalocracy, and I should define that first. But a thassalocracy is simply basically just the naval hegemon for an area or a time period to where it, its power and its great wealth is produced by its ability to project power with its navy and commence trade and protect its own trade. And so even the word thassalocracy kind of gives us a glimpse into what Thucydides was working with here. And he also somewhat plays his hand with the last sentence of the quote I read to you, to where the reason that he put down this piracy, as it was a necessary step to secure the revenues for his own use, Thucydides kind of shows that he's not exactly telling us the story as he knows it, but more so how he knows it and how he perceives it to have happened. And this gets more into what makes the history of the Peloponnesian War such a great book. As Thucydides is not just explaining the history to us. He's telling us why it happens. Why are they attacking individual farms? Well, it's to break the political might of each side's alliance. If the individual smaller states that both Sparta and Athens controlled no longer feel that the individual powers can protect them, then they will break away from the alliance, thus weakening the enemy side. It's a history, but it's also an examination of geopolitics. It's why we have the phrase, the Thucydides trap, to where a rising power must fight a declining power, as the declining power knows that if it doesn't knock this rising power out, the rising power will supersede the declining power. That's what Sparta saw. Sparta saw Athens rising and knew that if he didn't strike while it was still more powerful, it would soon lose this opportunity to stop the rise of Athens. Even after it won the Peloponnesian War, Athens still eventually overtook Sparta because all the advantages that Athens had, being a naval power and a country full of islands, was hard for the Spartans to defeat, even with the single-minded military might of the Spartan warriors. But George Grote, in his famous book, A History of Greece, basically points this all out to the reader. To where Thucydides is looking at the ancient world through the lens of his own. To where he sees Athens becoming a naval power and using its naval power to then stop piracy because it's not profitable for the merchants of Athens to have, just let pirates run amok. And he uses that viewpoint 
to explain early Greek history. And he attributes this to a king that he calls Minos. But the Greeks attributed everything to Minos. (laughs) The Athenians even had the famous story about how they had to send the daughters and sons of nobles to this Minos. And he would put them in a giant labyrinth with a giant minotaur in the middle. But that story is obviously didn't happen. Only because there's no such thing as a minotaur. So this Thassilocracy is more thought of as the deductive reasoning of Thucydides to what he just imprinted his world on a world a thousand years older. And while there is some evidence that it happened, for example, Greek pottery and different artifacts have been found in Egypt dated to the Minoan civilization era. And we know there were traders who went and carried goods from the Minoan period between Crete, the mainland, and Egypt. When people really say the Minoan Thassilocracy doesn't exist, what they're not saying is that the Minoan civilization didn't have a large trading, not not trading empire, but a large trade association with the powers around it. More so that to be a Thassilocracy, you have to control your neighbors through your naval might. And what many thought this looked like for the Greek mainland is these Minoan traders would come and set up a lot of what would later what the Europeans would later do to Africa, to where you pull up to the coast and you have a trading center, and you let the locals of the area bring their goods to you, and then you trade them your goods in this one area. It's not that you control them; it's just that you're the only trader in town. They don't get any other traders, so they have to come to you if they want goods from other societies. So even though that these trader trading locations did exist on the Greek mainland and in Egypt, that didn't mean that the Minoans controlled the people on the mainland the way a Thassalocracy would have to, the way the Athens later did. Now, the arguments for a Thassalocracy, including that they had this large trading network would be the archaeological excavations of Knossos, which was a Minoan city. So Knossos is in central Crete. If you go to the middle and then kind of go north towards the shore, you'll get the ancient Knossos. And the Minoans had large palaces, but what made them so distinct from later Greeks and the Mycenaean period was that these palaces were undefended. And while that may not shock the modern mind, as most palaces are undefended, you make a palace for leisure and a castle for defense, it wasn't the case in the ancient world. A good example is Athens. When you think of Athens, the first thing that should come to your mind is the Acropolis, the famous Greek Parthenon on the hill that overlooks the city. It's, it's still a beautiful view to this day. But the thing that makes that special is the reasons that Athens was chosen was because of the mount that the Acropolis sits on is so high and so sheer. Ancient city founders, when looking for a great place to found a new city, usually look for tall hills for the defensive measures that it would give the citizens of that city. So when you go back to Knossos, These great palaces were all undefended. 
And to the modern mind, and to Thucydides especially, when you find these ancient undefended palaces, you have to find some way that they were defended. And the reason that Athens specifically was built away from the sea, because it's not actually on the sea, it's a few kilometers from the sea, and on a giant hill, was to defend specifically from raiders, from pirates. And so if Kenosis didn't have that problem of piracy or raiders, obviously the kings, who all the Greeks at that point would just call Minos, had to control the sea lanes and control the pirates in that area. So that's the argument for a Minoan Thassalocracy. It doesn't doesn't really matter to the conversation we're having about ancient piracy if the Minoan civilization was a Thassalocracy. Because piracy obviously did exist by that time. And it was different. People in boats would leave their area to go raid their enemies. Or just whoever they can find in the eastern Mediterranean. And there was definitely the beginning of the trading network of the Mediterranean really starting to blossom up at this time. Well, the Minoan civilization may have been the first big group to have a large amount of traders and to project power navally and probably to have pirates from their people. They were not the last for sure. And they were also not the most complex or argued about the most and from different historians. That prize would go to a people called the Sea Peoples. And by the name, I hope you understand just how little we actually know about them. It's not like the Minoan civilization to where we have some speculation from people who lived in the same area code, let's say, of the historical landscape. We know what they might have been called by people from that era. We have some writings from them. The Minoan writings would be Linear B. For the Sea People... We don't have any of that, as they were more of a nomadic Mongol horde with boats confederation than they were a single group of people. And while that sounds shocking and almost impossible, as logically to me, it always seemed that the settled societies would be the better naval people. They're better at the cooperation that we humans are so drawn to. While the barbarians may be better at horses where they grow up on the the steps, the Eurasian steps, and they're basically born in a saddle. You really need a port city to become a great naval empire. You need a large trading sphere to make it worth having a large amount of your people focused on aquatic activities. And barbarians don't seem like they would be drawn to that. That they would have the the learned institutional knowledge to be able to defeat these settled navies. But that's the great part about early history. Is it's not just the most advanced civilizations with the highest populations that always come out on top. Sometimes it's just whoever's the most vicious, whoever has the best morale. And you really don't see that in modern day, in the modern day world. We've kind of all decided there's one way to run a country. The liberal Western democracy is the superior political institution. 
and it's simply the best in all forms. But and while it's good for overall society as a whole, you lose some of the colorful variety you have in older histories with older civilizations. A lot of what we know about the Sea People is where we can see the histories of different people just stop, just come to an end. We're like firefighters who can go to a burnt house and see, oh, it must be an electrical fire because this is where it's the hottest. This is where it burned the longest. That's a lot of what we do when looking at sea people's history. We go and see, oh, when do we stop seeing artifacts from this civilization? Oh, that's probably when they were in contact with the sea peoples. So, who and what were these sea peoples? It's believed that they were either a confederation of states or just a whole bunch of tribes moving at the same time of different tribes from Anatolia, also known as Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And they moved throughout the Hittite region, which, again, Asian Minor or lower Turkey. And we don't really know what drove these sea people from their original area. But they came to the eastern Mediterranean at that time like a firestorm. And they burned all through it. They burned through Greece. They burned through Anatolia until they really reached Egypt. And it was there that Ramses II and his son Ramses III fought battles against them and was finally able to build a firewall and stop the destruction. So what we do know about the Sea People comes from a few Hittite inscriptions and a few Egyptian inscriptions. Now you should be asking, why am I talking about the Sea People on a podcast about pirates? It sounds like that they were not pirates, but a barbarian horde that destroyed the known world at that time. The problem is how messy ancient warfare really was. Like when I talked about Lestes and how it stood for banditry and piracy, it was also just the way the Greeks fought war at that time. To where when you went and fought a people, very rarely did you have actual battles of two armies clashing against each other. That definitely did happen during every war. But for the most part, on a day-to-day basis, what the war would be about was your armed men going out and disrupting and stealing and raping their populace while also defending your people from their people trying to do the same thing to you. Thus, when these sea people came down into the eastern Mediterranean from all we know somewhere up north of Egypt, which is a lot of the world, they completely disrupted all of the trading patterns that had been starting to emerge through piracy. Through raiding, all the towns that were on the Mediterranean coast were destroyed. So we then have to question, when is it piracy and when is it warfare? Is it how how involved the state is? If a single political entity declares war on another political entity, is that piracy? I would say that's warfare, which is different than what we picture piracy to be. Piracy, at least in the modern day, is it can be a fleet of ships, but usually it's about one to five ships under a single pirate captain. 
under its own accord, stealing from, well, it can't be a certain nation. It's usually anyone for purely their own gain, no real political purpose. The question we thus have to ask is if there's a political purpose to the piracy, can it still be defined as piracy? Ultimately, it comes down to the individual occurrence to where it's piracy, if we can all look at it and say, obviously, that's piracy. An example would be, not to give you too much historical whiplash, but Sir Francis Drake in the early days of the Caribbean piracy, he would attack the Spanish treasure fleets and specifically the Spanish settlements in Panama and Latin America. And when they would charge the Spanish defenses or the Spanish treasure fleets, they would do so under an English flag, the Union Jack. For many of these pirates, it was not purely a financial operation that they were running. It was more so they were advancing the cause of the English at the expense of the Spanish in the area, even though the two countries weren't technically at war. It's what I like to call a form of patriotic piracy, to where you use piracy to hurt the enemy of your country, even though you aren't in open warfare. So, back to the sea people. I don't necessarily consider them to be a large pirate movement, so much as a whole people using warfare to find new lands for themselves. It would be like when I tell the Han took the Han Empire and took it into Rome and looted the Western Roman Empire. It would be like calling him a bandit or a simple raider. And that just doesn't sit right with us. You don't get the name Scourge of God and be a simple bandit. No, that's, that's an emperor, a warlord. He was not just moving his troops into Rome to loot and burn for their own individual gain. He was a conqueror, through and through, not a bandit. In the same way that these sea people, they weren't simply pirates. No, they were conquerors, and they conquered the early Bronze Era civilizations. They had more than simply piratical goals, thus disqualifying them, in my mind at least, from being one of the great pirate movements, like we will later later discuss. To figure out just how entwined the early piracy was with the warfare of the time, I think it's good to examine, go back and examine the book, The History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. I see that's a really good job of showing just how complex it can be. De Souza, in his book, The Piracy in the Greco-Roman World, does a great job of breaking this down. Where, as he points out, Thucydides differentiates what he calls normal warfare with this lestia, which is translated to plundering in modern-day English. Thucydides points out that to start the war, the both the Spartan and Athenian side would issue what it, we now call reprisals to their own individual citizens. And what these reprisals really were were basically an early form of a letter of mark, where it was one government saying, we recognize an individual citizen's right to go take back what is theirs from an enemy civilization. So an Athenian, if he felt like he was wronged by a Spartan, or if the Athenian government was just trying to get back at the Spartan government, 
they would issue these reprisals. And that individual citizen now had the ability to round up a group of, fr- of friends, even try to get some investors who will put in some money for a boat and get handbacks if the reprisal is successful, and take this crew to the Spartan homeland and go fix the perceived wrong and get what get back what's yours. Maybe that's a few slaves. Maybe it's to kill a few of their cows for revenge. But it was completely legal and seen as a just way to conduct this plundering. And both the Spartans and the Athenians would use these reprisals before the war as kind of a rough feeling out to where you know you're about to go to war. So let's send a few people over to weaken their side a little before officially starting hostilities. So before you have to call in all the citizen soldiers from the fields and start preparing the whole entire police for war, you can start sending a little probing attacks over just to, just to see what happens. Test the defenses a little. During the war, as you want to hurt the political coherence of the other side's alliance, and then later on in the war, they would stop using reprisals of individual citizenships or lesser states. And then the armies themselves would just go take these reprisals as a way of procurement of both food and wealth to maintain the industrial war machine that was grinding down both sides. The system of reprisals became a double-edged sword, though, specifically for the Athenians, As once the war is over and Athens lost, it had debts to pay to Sparta as war reparations. And when Athens couldn't pay those debts, what Sparta would do was then just issue more reprisals against the Athenians. The idea of, we'll get our money no matter what, even if it's through your citizens becoming slaves. The other obvious problem that this brings up is if you give the individual citizen, the ability to become a pirate and to go take a slave of the enemies, it's very hard to stop him from continuing to be a pirate. We all know that it's very hard for humans to only take enough just for them. It starts as we're kids. How many times have you set a bowl of candy out for Halloween? Just take one. People take more than one. Who's going to stop them? It was the same for our ancestors. I also like to think there was somewhat of a survivor's bias to where raiding is really easy until it's not. Stealing from peasants, civilians, poor farmers, merchant ships, they're undefended. That's fun. That's easy. That's something you can go home and tell your friends about. An easy way to make cash quick. The ancient version of a get-rich-quick scheme. The people who had to deal with the consequences of being caught really got to share their side of the story, though. For as the famous phrase goes, dead men tell no tales. A good example of how this reprisals comes from the book I mentioned earlier, Piracy in the Greco-Roman World. Quote, Some Athenian ambassadors who were on their way to Moslus of Caria in a trireme captured a ship from Nacaratus in Egypt and seized nine and a half talents worth of property. It was decided by the people that although the Athenians and Egyptians were not at war, and had no current disputes, Athens' friendly relations with the king of Persia, from whom the Egyptians were in revolt, 
justified the seizure of Egyptian plunder. The goods became property of the state, since they had been taken by men on an official mission, and a tithe of the proceeds was paid to Athena. With such a large sum involved, it was not difficult to find an excuse for this opportunist act. This putting the genie back in the bottle of piracy is something that the Western world's going to have to struggle with for as long as we allow these reprisals slash letter of marks. It's hard to give people the taste of the good life. It's hard to tell sailors that, all right, you've had your fun. Go back to being a fisherman or a merchant or a simple farmer working all day in hard labor for pennies. It's hard to convince people to go back to that life, that hopelessness, that mundaneness. Many pirates come from abject poverty. They view it as the only way out. It's a hard sell. The question that emerges with these reprisals is how do you defend against it? How do you defend against people being able to take slaves with the righteous actions of the state behind them? If you're a large city-state, you'd make a navy to protect your own merchants. If you're a small city-state, you would try to get Asilia or Asilios. And what this basically meant is that the Greek society as a whole kind of got together and agreed that this city that we all individually agree to grant Asilios has some reason or another to where we shouldn't attack it. We should not raid it. It should be exalted to a place of safety. The city of Delphi, with his famous oracle and temple, was given this. And individual small Greek city-states got it from the large states surrounding them. And specifically, they would try to get it from Cretan city-states, as the Cretes were the major pirates for many hundreds of years in that region. But most the time, even though the Greek, small Greek city-states would go for this, this asylum basically the safety net it would not be given as long with the states that benefited from piracy like all the cretan city states shrink the hunting fields it took you being a special historical center mostly religious for a large group of these city states will basically say hey we will give you this asylum basically to where if a pirate attacks you we will help you get revenge get your people back or it took you getting sponsored by a larger city-state to where you would go to the hegemon of your local area. Now, you may be wondering, how important was this piracy to the local economy of the area? And my first thought when I was looking into the subject is, obviously, it'd be a drain on the trade empires. So all states will collectively get together and try to shut down piracy. And while that did happen at certain points, and different states would blame each other for piracy to to get the average Greek city-state's disposition to be a little more positive on some political points for their own police, piracy was important to antiquity because it served a crucial role in maintaining the many slave states in that area. We like to think of Athens as the noble beacon of democracy in a world of darkness that was ancient Greece, the ancient world in general. But it still had slaves, and it still needed a way to replenish those slaves through different slave markets throughout the ancient world. And piracy was a good way of facilitating this slave trade when there wasn't large wars happening. 
Uh, slaves still died, and slavery was still economically important. The Spartans, for example, built their whole entire society on slavery as they needed to. You can't get Spartan soldiers who are able to completely focus on pure warfare, where their whole entire lives are built around practicing for this warfare, if you don't have helots to tend the fields for those Spartans. They still need food. They still need shelter. All the manual labors that we take for granted today still needed to be done by someone. And at that time, the most economic way for you to get more free time was to get a slave to do all the work for you. So the slave trade was very valuable. And piracy was able to grease the wheels of this giant slavery machine that the slave states needed to maintain their current economic system and even their current way of life. Even when there's not massive wars going on at the exterior of the Greek and later Roman world. So when pirates would come across unexpected merchant ships, the first thing they would check was to see if they could take slaves. As if their country of origin had a treaty with the country of origin of the opposing vessel, then they couldn't take the slaves. But if they didn't, then it was free game. There was lots of treaties between specific city-states saying that we won't let our people raid your people, and vice versa. And there was also lots of treaties about the repatriation of citizens taken as slaves. So if Athens has a treaty with Corinth, and a Corinth pirate takes an Athenian as a slave, or if they buy a slave who happens to be Athenian, they would then be expected to repatriate that citizen back to Athens. And Athens would do the same for Corinth and vice versa. This allowed there to be some st stability within this massive vortex of human suffering, which was the driving economic force behind ancient medieval economies. Which is a good time to talk about moving on from ancient Greco piracy to ancient Roman piracy. For as the... Greek city-states started to take a back from controlling the Mediterranean and really pushing the geopolitics of the area, the Romans stepped forward in unison and would completely dominate the next hundreds of years. They would turn the, the maelstrom of different powers rising and falling in the Mediterranean, causing instability and the flourishing of piracy and using the Imperium. The Mare Nostrum that they would create would choke out all piracy at its core. Since Rome controlled all entrances to the Mediterranean and all ports in the Mediterranean and all islands in the Mediterranean, there was no safe place for pirates to go. There was no home ports that Rome did not control. This had a benefit to the Roman citizens, which they enjoyed, to where trade flourished within the empire. But it also hurt the Roman slave markets. To where in the early Roman, when they were taking before they took over all of the Mediterranean, the Roman pirates specifically were were basically slavers. Where they would go to the the Eastern Mediterranean at that time and take slaves, or up to the Black Sea, and take Slavic slaves. The Roman armies used the legions to uh, defeat. Whenever they would defeat barbarians, they would take them as slaves. So piracy. At the start of the Roman Empire, before it became the true imperium, before it controlled all of the Mediterranean Sea, Rome didn't really care about piracy. And while that hurt the individual traders of the Mediterranean at that time, it 
helped Rome in the geopolitical sense as Rome was a land-based power. They got their power through the fertile soil of the Italian peninsula with their legions of heavy infantry. They viewed patrolling for piracy as a naval powers problem, so a Carthage's problem, or in the east, a Rhodes problem. Talking about the Roman issue of piracy is a good time to bring up one of the most famous stories of ancient piracy. Had to do with Julius Caesar as he was on his way east to an oratory school. The actual story comes from Plutarch, who in his parallel lives wrote about different Greek and Roman famous figures to give the modern day Roman Empire citizens something to strive towards. The same reason to where all American kids know about George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. It gives us cultural icons to be more like. So we too can accomplish the great things that they did. Anyway, as Julius Caesar took a trip to an oratory school in Rhodes to further his political career in Rome, he was passing by an island of what was called Pharmacusa. I believe it's now pronounced Pharmaconisi, but I apologize for my pronunciation. It's uh, it's north of Rhodes by the Turkish mainland, but in ancient times it was dangerous to go more than a few miles away from the coast as they had no real way of being able to navigate without using the coast. And you really didn't want to get caught up in a Mediterranean storm. The Romans had already lost three fleets during the Punic Wars to storms. So they knew the danger of getting caught in a Mediterranean storm in antiquity. But as Plutarch put it, Julius Caesar was captured by these pirates, and he was taken to this island. This is a quote from Plutarch. Quote, To begin with, then, when the pirates demanded 20 talents for his ransom, he laughed at them for not knowing who their captive was, and of his own accord agreed to give them 50. In the next place, after he had sent various followers to various cities to procure the money, and was left with one friend and two attendants among the Cilicians, the most murderous of men, he held them in such disdain that whenever they lay down to sleep, he would send and order them to stop talking. For eight and thirty days, as if the men were not his watchers but his royal bodyguard, he shared in their sport of exercises with great unconcern. He also wrote poems and sundry speeches, which he read aloud to them, and those who did not admire these he would call to their faces illiterate barbarians and often laughingly threaten to hang them all. The pirates were delighted by this and attributed his boldness of speech to a certain simplicity or boyish mirth. And it's a great story as it gives you an idea of who Julius Caesar was. A man almost consumed by his own greatness, who knew that he would be great. And so even though he's put in this threatening situation to where the Cilicine pirates were the most dangerous people at that time, not as physically scary as barbarians, the Gauls, but just as wild. Yeah, he was unconcerned as he was never worried. He, he knew that he was not to die here. He was for a greater destiny. He also knew his worth. That it was unbecoming of a man of his stature to only be worth 20 talents. It was a spit in his face. The greatest part of the story, though, is not his own cocksure attitude. It's that I believe personally that he was never worried about the money. Well, <laughs> because Julius Caesar was honestly never worried about the money that got him in a lot of financial trouble. But he always knew that he would come back and kill these pirates for taking him captive. Captives don't threaten their captor. When you have no power, you don't want to make the other 
party aware that if they let you go, that you'll kill them. Yet Julius Caesar did. And the funny irony of this story is that while the pirates didn't believe that he would, Plutarch is really explaining the old Roman way of thinking. That honor and your word is what makes the man. It's one of the many reasons the Roman Republic and later Empire was able to conquer the known world. Its people had a heritage of honor, even in the face of impossible odds or Herculean tasks. But let's focus back on to the antagonists, the people we're really looking at, the Cilician pirates. Who were these people that are so famous in our history now, mostly from Plutarch in this story, but also just from their general terrorizing the Mediterranean during an, imp- an important time in the Mediterranean history. The fall of the Republic and the beginning of the Empire is some of the most written about times in all of human history. I would put it up there with Waterloo or currently the end of the Second World War. There's so many formidable power players within the Roman Republic at that time. That you don't even have to imagine anything. It's all one big drama. And while the Cilician pirates definitely still a major problem, pirates, as I mentioned earlier, are just such a great villain. Even back then, Cicero, in all of his speeches, or the political speeches that we have today, when he's trying to discredit the accomplishments of a particular political enemy, he often describes how they allow piracy to happen and that discredits them in the minds of the people but the Cilician pirates come from a part of what we now call modern turkey what was then called asia minor it's the southern coast of turkey in a mountainous region called cilicia that's where they get their name and the actual region of cilicia is kind of interesting because it kind of matches up with what crete was before cilicia became the pirate hub the, you always be worried about Cretan pirates. But it's a mountainous region with a coastline. And areas like that in the ancient world begged to become hubs for pirates. As they were really all mountainous regions had a habit of becoming hubs for bandits. And if that mountain region was touching water, logically those bandits would also have a capability of going to sea. And it was more profitable being a pirate than it would be being a simple bandit as 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 i talked earlier the hunting grounds for pirates is important and being able to go all across the mediterranean is faster than however far your two feet or a horse can take you there's a reason that even though it was still more dangerous to travel by boat politicians did it so much quicker but these cilician pirates were able to thrive because after the fall of the Alexander successor states, that being the Seleucid Empire, the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt, the, the powers in the east, after they fell and Carthage was defeated, there was no real great Greek city-state to take up the naval hegemon slack. Rhodes was still somewhat powerful, but on the decline. And as Rome was really, as we said earlier, a land power... They weren't really interested in patrolling the seas. It was a hard sell to the Senate to spend money on armed forces to protect a trade empire they didn't really have yet. So, because the main power in the Mediterranean didn't really care 
These Cilician pirates are able to run Ramsha over all the Mediterranean and raid all of the sea lanes with impunity. And originally, as I said earlier, the Romans were also a slave state. And so these pirates weren't necessarily the worst thing. Because while they had lots of slaves from their conquests, slavery is a little bit like sugar to where once you get a little bit of taste of it, you kind of want more. It's a little addictive. Maybe cocaine is a better example than sugar. As ancient philosophers even then were arguing that slavery rotted the society, made it weak, decadent. Consequently, as Rome was not willing to spend the money to protect the trade lanes, it really wasn't so much a money problem as just it didn't know it was supposed to. Rome got all this power all of a sudden and all this responsibility, and they kind of had to step into it. Consequently, the Sicilian pirates had a few years where they were raiding basically an unprotected Mediterranean. The actual beginning of Cilician piracy is thought to be started by a man called Diodotus Trifone. He was basically a warlord in what we would now consider to be Syria, and his goal was to supplant the regional power at that time, the Seleucid Empire. And to help his military war effort, he supposedly sponsored the original Cilician pirates with a goal to raid the rich cities of Syria and Egypt. And as we've talked about before, once a people tasted the sweet nectar of raiding of piracy, it's hard to wane them from that rich teat. It's addictive. And it became addictive to the Cilicians, to where even after Diodotus was done with them, they didn't stop. They simply found new hunting grounds. They went west. The first example we have of a Roman military action against the, the Cilician pirates comes in 102 BC by a man called Marcus Antonius. Cicero says that he raised a war chest of a, about 100,000 denarii, set out with a naval fleet to the Cilicia to erase the issue of Cilician piracy. And while we know he wasn't completely successful, Cilician pirates were still a problem after this and continue to crop up throughout early Roman history. He was successful enough to earn himself a triumph and then to gain a prefectureship later on in his life. For people who don't know, a triumph was basically just a giant military parade to where if a general has had a successful campaign, he's able to take back all the slaves and all of his enemies and parade them through the streets of Rome. In large part, it's a push for more political power. Well, Marcus Antonius was certainly the first Roman campaign against the Cilicians. He was not the last. The most famous having to be Pompey's. Now, Pompey was a rising star in 68 BCE when he first launched this campaign. He was seen as the great general before Julius Caesar took over Gaul. He was part of the Triumvirate, which would be the secret pact between Julius Caesar, Cassius, and Pompey that would basically accelerate the fall of the Roman Republic. When Julius Caesar would cross the Rubicon, Pompey's the man who could save Rome in its most dire moment. So he, he, was, he was a big shot. And a lot of the political power that he obtained came through his ability to persecute a war against the pirates, the Cilician pirates. Now, the reason that I explained that to you 
is because a lot of our sources on the Cilician Pirates comes from Cicero, who was a staunch Republican and believer in the Senate. And a lot of the oratory speeches that he gave, the whole entire goal was to pump Pompey up, to make him more likable, to make him a better general, so that the people would turn to him and the Republic would be saved. As such, when examining the success of Pompey's individual campaigns against the pirates, we have to take into account that that Cicero's speeches on Pompey may not be the most historically accurate accounts of what actually happened. Now, the question really is, how do you destroy piracy that has taken over the whole Mediterranean as quickly as possible? Well, luckily, Pompey gives us a good blueprint to follow. The next thing you need is a massive army and navy. It's said that Pompey proposed there to be 25 legatus, which should be a legatus. You have to be in charge of a legion, and a legion being about being about five and a half thousand men. So what is that, about 130,000 men, 140,000? Simply to clear out the piracy in the Mediterranean. This is not some great geopolitical state like Carthage. This is simply for piracy. Never let it be said that Rome did things in half measures. Well, Pompey wanted about 25 legions. It said they only got 13 to 14. But this extreme reverse course of going from not really caring about piracy to basically trying to eradicate it as quickly as possible was partly from a problem Rome would have for the next few hundred years that the actual city of Rome had grown to such an enormous size that it was unable to feed itself without getting grain imports from more fertile parts of the empire. Specifically in this case, North Africa. But later on, the Nile Delta will become a very important grain exporter for the city of Rome. So because the Western Empire, or specifically North Africa was where Rome needed to get its grain from. Pompey really focused the legatas, the legions, on clearing out piracy from that area first. Because if the grain did not flow, then there would be bread riots. And as many Roman emperors would later learn, bread riots are at the beginning of the end. When you have that many people who are that hungry, blood will flow. Now, Cicero says that it took Pompey about 40 days to clear out the whole entire Western Mediterranean from all piracy. Plutarch also agrees that it took about 40 days for him to finish the the Western side. And while they use this to show how industrious Pompey is, how efficient he is, how ruthless he is at rooting out piracy, modern historians take a different viewpoint of its more... More of a rush job. He hit all the major hot spots and then quickly moved on. Now, where Pompey and Julius Caesar differed is that when Julius Caesar got captured and he promised the pirates that he would go back and kill them all, he did. He went back and he executed them all on the cross. It said that he put the crosses where the high tide would reach them. That way their feet would be in the water still. Pompey, on the other hand, was more lenient with pirates. He almost had a a modern-day pirate buyback program to where if you came in and said, hey, I admit I was being a pirate, he would be lenient. He wouldn't kill you. 
he give you a, a strong talking to and, and let you go. Let's say if you do this again, we're coming back. And well, I know he want to say I'm bringing Julius Caesar with me next time, as he would never give any ounce of political credit to any of his rivals, even the ones that he is nominally allied to. He maybe said that if I hear you being a pirate again, I'm coming back with these legions and I'm doing it the same way Julius Caesar did it before to where you will not be ending up with a nice slap on the wrist. Hey, don't do this again. No, you will be crucified. This leniency meant that when Pompey actually did reach the actual area of Cilicia, where the pirates were based, this is how Cicero says it went. His reputation and his preparedness reduced the pirates to panic, and the hope that, through not fighting, they would make him benevolent towards them. First, those who held Kragos and Anti-Kragos, the largest stronghold, surrendered. And after them, those who lived in the Cilician Mountains and eventually all the rest followed suit. So Kragos and Anti-Kragos would be the cities on the coast. When I first found that, I found it somewhat hilarious that the cities are called Kragos and Anti-Kragos. It would be like, instead of being called Newark, it would be like having New York and Anti-New York. I've never been to Newark, but I feel like they may fit as a city called Anti-New York. But maybe that's a better name for upstate, say like Buffalo. This leniency, though, is not something that you historically see with pirates. It's much more common to see the Julius Caesar method of you just go back and you kill all of them. And I think it's important to remember this single moment. As we move into more modern times, specifically the Victorian era, the golden age of piracy, you don't see this leniency come back very often. It's something rare with Pompey, which I don't want to attribute too much to him because I don't think he did it out of any moral crusading. It was simply a means to an end. So it could be argued that in the later Victorian area when they would have massive piracy amnesties, that this is similar to what they did then. But for most of human history, piracy has a problem. Or at least I've seen it have a problem. To where it's so universally hated that once you commit the act, you're scarred for life. And you can never run away from it. No matter where you go, most authorities are going to kill you if they can. If they get their hands on you. And they're going to kill you in the most gruesome and painful way that they have at their disposal. Plutarch writes that Pompey is able to distinguish what he would call wicked piracy from good piracy. He saw that Cilicia was a very poor region and that many of the pirates simply turned to piracies. That was their only way of life. And Pompey, according to Plutarch, to a certain extent, took pity on them for the life that they were born into and traded them land for their ships so that they could go become farmers, become decent members of society. And that's an important aspect of this story, as the Roman Senate gave Pompey, the other imperator, Metilius, three years to accomplish this Herculean task of ridding the whole entire Mediterranean of these pirates. And Cicero in his speech talks about how Pompey did it in three months. And while there is some historical arguments about how thorough he was, he did accomplish, for the most part, ridding most of the Mediterranean from piracy to where the two hotbeds of piracy for much of antiquity, Cilicia and Crete, 
both surrendered to Pompey within those first three months. And he was able to repatriate many of the pirates into being just boring old farmers. There's a little unintended good cop, bad cop with his fellow legate, Matilius, where Matilius did follow the old way of dealing with piracy. The idea of prosecuting piracy so viciously that no one ever becomes pirates. So when the actual Cretans heard that Matilius was being sent their way, while Pompey had just finished up with the Cilicians, they basically sent negotiators to Pompey as quickly as possible, saying they were willing to all surrender to him if they just made sure Matilius didn't reach their shores. The important lesson that Rome later drew from this issue with piracy was one that it would never be completely secure until all of the Mediterranean was secure as it relied so heavily now on grain imports and corn imports that it couldn't risk there being any opposition to its trading routes within the Mediterranean whether that be a foreign power or or a domestic marauder and the way that Rome solved a lot of its problems when it came to its borders is it just comp- simply conquered more land. There's, there's an ancient phrase that Rome was the only reluctant world conqueror to where it really didn't want to conquer the land, except its borders kept being pressured, and so it had to conquer its neighbors to secure its borders. This issue with piracy became one of those moments to where Rome, of course, didn't want to conquer all of the Mediterranean. But to protect its internal stability, it simply had to, because it could not risk piracy being able to run rampant in foreign lands. The last time period we'll talk about is what's considered the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. It's also been called the Mare Nostrum, RC, to when the Romans controlled all of the Western Mediterranean. The way that this changed the Mediterranean was for the first time, there was no individual political entities that pirates could hide within. So there was no Cretan state that was independent that would give refuge to pirates that preyed on different states throughout the Mediterranean. Egypt was not independent, so no no pirates could be based out of the Egyptian ports. It was all controlled by Rome, and thus the citizens did a good job at patrolling their own borders. There was nowhere you could go within the Mediterranean and raid without hurting fellow Roman citizens. This, as I'm sure you probably have guessed, led to a sharp decline of the overall number of pirates. As I mentioned, pirates really thrive when they have a home base they can go to of a people they didn't raid. Of a people who don't hate their guts because they stole their fellow citizen. And when everyone in the Mediterranean is Roman... There's no one to raid. You have to raid your fellow people. And while there is definitely some individuals who are willing to do that, it's not nearly as enticing as it would be throughout history when you're raiding a different people who you're not in contact with all the time. For the next few centuries, the only time there's a real large piracy problem in the Mediterranean is when there's a civil war between two Roman armies, which that's arguable if that's even piracy, because again, how much of naval warfare at that time was piracy, and how much was it just warfare? The first example of this inner Roman piracy was during the, the Civil War, when Octavius was trying to secure the throne for himself. Sectus Pompeius retreated with many of the old Republican senators 
to the islands of Corsica and Sardinia. And he used his fleet to raid the grain import into Rome. And the first real crisis that Octavius had to deal with was the issue of these grain imports. If Rome was blockaded, Rome would starve. This led him to being very lenient with Sextus as he needed to stop blockading the Italian peninsula or the people would revolt and join Sextus simply to eat. He also had to curtail the popularity of Sextus and this is where many historians think that the actual, what some historians believe to be a piracy war the Sextus was waging against the Italian mainland to be somewhat fictitious as it was more of an Octavius spin to destroy his public image within Rome by calling his soldiers slave soldiers, because the Romans always had a fear of a slave uprising, like all great slave states do. But the reason I bring up this war is it's the real last great push of piracy before the Romans completely take over and use bureaucracy as an almost superpower to completely crush most piracy in the whole Mediterranean. There is some spatterings of specific revolts against Roman rule, but it's not anything, not anything major. For the most part, the denizens of the Mediterranean lived in what could be called Pax Pirata, to where there simply was no more forms of major piracy in the area. And the empire flourished because of it. The one change is now that piracy was not... At the forefront of the terror of the citizens, it became much more popular within the plays. The murals from those area also start having more of an influence of piracy. It seemed as the collective conscience of the Roman citizen moved further away from having actual piratical experiences. It started doing the thing that all humans in our history have done, where we start to romanticize them. We start to see them more as adventurers looking to live a good, fast life than the terrors of the seas they were. Or, on the flip side, we see them as the absolute terror who must be destroyed by some great noble hero. The further away we get from them, the more we lose perspective on what a real pirate is and what a real pirate does. The Romans' love of piracy echoes what we currently have today. With our own love of piracy. And just like how the fall of Rome was not the end of the world, which is the turning of the page to a new chapter, the fall of the Western Roman Empire is not the end of all history. And in fact, it was a boon to piracy. Because while the Roman Empire may have eradicated piracy in its time, they couldn't change the human nature. They just changed the conditions that allowed piracy to flourish. But as we'll see... Those conditions eventually do come back. And they come back with a vengeance. Possibly with a large beard. Wielding an axe. And ready to spill some blood. This was my attempt to somewhat explain the early history of piracy. From its very beginnings to late antiquity. Next episode we will be looking at. The fall of the Western Roman Empire and the chaos that that breeds. And moving into medieval piracy and to specifically Viking piracy. But thank you for listening to my podcast. Have a good day.